0: Thank you for joining us for today's Friday Gallery Talk. My name is Caroline Elliott. I'm the manager of adult programs here at the Hirshhorn. Today we have a special behind-the-scenes Friday Gallery Talk. Scott Larson, who is the head of our installations here at the Hirshhorn, will discuss the challenges that he and his staff face in putting together installations and interpreting the artist's intention. Scott will be leading us through examples of our second floor exhibition over under next. Um, Just please note that today's talk will be recorded for podcast on our uh, Website and on iTunes, so um, please help us to welcome Scott Larson.
1: Thanks. So I'm in the exhibits department. So basically, when you go into a gallery here at the Hirshhorn, pretty much everything you see is something we had a hand in doing with installing the artwork, painting the walls, uh, everything but building the walls, pretty much. Although sometimes we even do that. So. Um, so we 're try what, what our goal is is to show the artwork in its best light to show it uh, as with this minimum distractions so if you are looking at the installation and you have no awareness of my work at all then i 've done a good job. The idea is to not know what I've, what my input has been so um, so we 're going to go up to the galleries and go through. I'm going to touch on a number of pieces throughout the Over Under Next exhibition. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of it, too. So I hope that, uh, but we're going to go all the way through and come back to the beginning. So I'm hoping that afterwards, if you haven't already seen the exhibition, you can then go through again and take your time and forget about everything I've just told you, because it's it's really about the artwork, not about the work that I do, the -the behind-the-scenes work. Also, I'd like to say that, um, you know, in, in the work the title of this talk is Interpreting uh, the Artist's Intentions, and I mean that in a very broad way. I'm not really interpreting uh, necessarily from their intentions. I mean, I'm making extrapolations about the artwork sometimes, or sometimes there are instructions, but... Um, you know, it's a broad sense of interpreting. And installation, also, it's the title of the talk, is Interpreting uh, Intentions of Installation Artists. And really, there's only one artist in this exhibition that is technically an installation artist, and that's Ann Hamilton. So I'm talking more about any artwork that requires special treatment, uh, special planning, and technical measures. So, this is the first work I'd like to talk about, which is uh, Joseph Albers' uh, piece, Window Picture, 1921. So, this is an early work by Joseph Albers when he didn't have a lot of money and was using found objects, broken glass, tin cans. And uh, so, you know, we can infer right away that it's an artwork that that needs to be backlit. And uh, he probably hung it in a window and let the sun shine through it. As you may have noticed, the Hirschhorn doesn't have a lot of windows, and plus it's not a good idea to put uh, an artwork where it's exposed to a lot of UV rays anyway. so, uh, So we've gone through a few different permutations of how we've dealt with this. When I first came here, it was held off the wall with brackets, and we tried to light it by bouncing light off the wall behind it, and that was not very successful. And then, uh, maybe 10 years ago, we had an installation where we had a a false wall, and we had a wall cavity that we could um, light it from, and so we stuck a work light behind it, and uh, that looked a lot better, but it was a little hot in the middle, and the details around the edges, you couldn't see. Um, So then, uh, more recently, uh, one of my co-workers, John Twink, found a uh, company that makes... Uh, LED panels, light panels, and uh, they have done this for displayed objects, art objects before, and so we had them make one sized for this piece, and uh, I think the results are great. I think this is a real success story of taking, you know, obvious intentions of the artist and over time, improving on the display options until you have something that, that works pretty well. I mean, you can really see the details on this one, and it doesn't, uh, I mean, I think you, you don't really notice that it's, there's something going on here that was technologically difficult. You just, you just appreciate the artwork. How do you run
0: the electricity?
1: Uh, this is uh, fed with a, a low voltage wire through the, that's dropped through the wall and there's a transformer right up there. So, it's pretty simple. Yes?
0: Do you try to bring, if you could, if you get even more light behind like it? In other words, do
1: you, is there a level of light at which you choose not to go? above? Well, um, I think we we tested it. We had some some sample LED light panels um, that were, were brought in and, and we tested it. And I think it was decided this was Pretty good. Um, We have a couple other pieces that are later Joseph Albers works that are also backlit, and I think we tried it on one of them first, um, and then we just kind of kept them all the same after that. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe it could be a little brighter, but I'm I'm pretty happy with it.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, the LED, that's
1: the thing, is that... Uh, yeah, 20 years ago, this wouldn't have even been an option. So uh, so the LEDs are the perfect solution from a conservation standpoint and from an exhibit standpoint. So now we're going to just go right next door to the Joseph Cornells. Joseph Cornell it made these... Little boxes, um, and his—he's a very uh, unusual artist. If you're not familiar with him, and his objects are very personal. They're very uh, human scale. They're—they're they're sort of meant to be experienced one on one, and they're also interactive to some degree. Um, but they're also very fragile and very valuable. So we have, and I'd like to. Particularly draw your attention to two of these: the one that's laying flat there, which is called Seaside, and this one that I'm—you uh, can see the back of here, which is called Sand Fountain. And you can see that they look a little different than the rest of them, and they're—they're they're actually really meant to be experienced by manipulating. They're completely smooth because you're supposed to hold them in your hands and shake them around and and play with them that way. You know, the Seaside has. This, the sand can be slid along with the shell and the, uh, and the starfish, and the sand fountain, if you turn it over upside down and let all the sand run into the top and then turn it back, it actually is a sand fountain spilling into a, a, little, a little cup. So obviously that, we can't let the viewer experience things that way. Um, and So this is more of an example of a, a, a problem we haven't really solved yet. You know, I mean, I think if these two works were the only Joseph Cornells in the collection, then maybe we would have made a a, a facsimile We would have made a, a a a a duplicate that we could let people touch. Um, but we have a number of Cornells, and so that need hasn't really come up um, in the past, lots of times we've displayed these works. In individual cases, uh, this time we went for a large grouping on a, on a table-like pedestal. And to me this is a much more successful because it shows, there's sort of a casual, uh, quality to it. Since they are all objects that you're supposed to sort of touch and interact with, you know, even though you can't, at least you can sort of imagine that they were all sort of Picked up and put down on a table in a, in a casual way, and that—that um, that to me, you know—is is a good thing. I think this is the best they've looked, um, and you know, maybe in the future we'll do something more. But for now, I think this is pretty good. I'm sure you
0: probably a tilt table to, to mobilize it, but would that
1: ruin the piece because it's getting uh, yeah. used? It would. It would. You know that the the. The items that are in there are pretty fragile, so over time, even just letting that happen, you know I mean every year these things get more fragile and and more valuable to to a degree so and um, you know you could there's they they're all a little bit interactive you know it's like uh, would you let people pull the drawers out i
0: don 't know <laughs> so, sure. What does your department receive as far as instructions when interacting with any artwork, even whether? Or not, how does it differ between what we have in our permanent collection versus something we might be might have on loan? Do you have the instructions, or do you just a conversation?
1: Right, that that varies a lot, uh, uh, and that's part of what I want to talk about, especially with the next piece. Um, with with works like these uh, from this era, Joseph Cornell's and, and the Joseph Albers', um, there, you know, there was, there's really not a lot. There, there's interviews with artists. There's uh, uh, things, you know, the history. There's the documentation of the history of the objects. But um, there it wasn't an era where an artist would necessarily write out instructions as to how they want to display you know. With um, Cornell, it's like it's obvious that he he made them as like something you should be able to pick up and hold and look at. Um, but you know, he was really he was doing his own thing. You know, he wasn't uh, and he wasn't really thinking about the long-term display of his objects. But now we're going to travel to skip to the middle of the exhibition. So we're going to walk through about three galleries. Um, and talk about the Mario Mertz where, and that's where I want to start talking about where uh, artworks, where instructions are necessary and where we're, we're starting with something and then adding to it. Here you'll see in the next gallery, uh, the uh, Stan Brakhage film, which is just an example of how, you know, a, a, an audio-visual piece, well actually just visual, there's no audio, uh, that where the artist has required that we have to show it in 16 millimeter film. So those are the measures we have to take when it's 16 millimeter. There's a looper and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an actual projector there as opposed to further along, you'll see a, an installation where it's a, a digital projector. So that's another thing we have to take into account with, with AV pieces. So uh, this is a piece by Mario Mertz, Italian artist, uh, part of the Arte Povera school movement. and um, This is an interesting piece, it's um, obviously pretty tricky to install, I mean none of these pieces of glass are mechanically attached, they're all just kind of balanced there. the first time this was installed was before my tenure here uh, but I happen to know that it was, they were working from photographs from, and not from very many photographs, a handful of photographs from catalogs and they were from at least two different installations where it was done two different ways um, and so they had to work it out and it took some time. Uh The first time I installed it, we had the photos that they worked from, plus a few more. But as you can imagine, if you're working from a photo of this that has been taken with a flash camera, it's very hard to tell where a pane of glass is on top of or behind another pane of glass. So it was, it, it's really challenging. Um, so what we've been... So this will be the, the third time I've set this up. So every time we've tried to improve on those um, instructions, and you know I think in this case the artist's intent perhaps was that it just be done different every time, or that it be you know you know you just do a, a close approximation. But really, you know you don't want to be doing that with. Big sheets of plate glass. And, uh, so we're, we're in the process of making this set in stone. This is how it's done. Every element will be completely clear to the installer. And the, the goal is to, like, not have to make decisions. It's already been made and you're just following the instructions. And so at this point we have a, a, a thick folder with photos from that actually break it all down uh, with dotted lines showing the edges of the um, of the glass. At some point, somebody spilled uh, a, a drink on this photo, <laughs> 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 but it's—I'm uh, sure it didn't happen in the galleries. It happened on somebody's death. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's getting to a point now where everything is all these when when these come down, all these pieces of glass get numbered. All of the uh, areas on the piece are numbered everything is is sort of accounted for and so all the only decision we will have to make is basically where the uh, where the power is you know where the thing plugs in and uh, and so it's you know it's progress and uh, eventually you know I won't it'll be something that can just be handed off to a group of installers who have never done it before and they can they can just knock it out I mean, I think you could argue, that, I mean the question is what parts are replaceable on a piece like this? I mean definitely the uh, the neon is, because neon has a finite life. All parts of the neon. Um, and actually I think some of these have been replaced. Uh, fairly recently, <laughs> one of them was. <laughs> it's a good
0: question, and I'll ask you as an exhibit person. Um, have each of the pieces of glass been uh,
1: traced out, so that they you know? Yes. I, Larissa says yes, and I bet it's because she did it. Yeah, I think that was a recent I think that was a recent development and that might have been something that came uh, was initiated by collection management. And in contrast,
0: you
1: know do the pile of rags up there, do you? Well the pile of rags, um, no. And uh, that's a different story over there. Um, Right, I mean, that's a, yeah, I wasn't going to talk about the pistoletto, but that's an example of, you know, it's, it's, it basically is just what you see, you know, there's not really anything, any trick to that, that's just a pile of rags and a sculpture and we just stick them together and yeah, there's some visual, um, you need a photograph so you know how high to make the rags you need, but there's not a lot of, that you can add to it over time. But yeah, the glass could be replaced, and uh, and and the neon has been, and you know the clamps and the and the metal components are, will last forever. I think it's just plate glass. There's a co- there are different thicknesses, um, but not many. You know, I think it's kind of you get the impression that it was just kind of like what was in the scrap pile at a at a glass shop. You know. Okay, so now we're going to walk through to uh, the Ann Hamilton piece. So we're going to walk through a couple more galleries. So, so this um, this work by Ann Hamilton is is truly an installation artwork. It's. You build the room to her specifications. Every inch of the room is covered with the artwork. There's, uh, you know, it's kinetic. There's a fan. There's living organisms in here that have to be cared for. So it's it's really embodies the idea of installation art completely. Um, there's a lot that could be said about this uh, this piece, and I'm, I'm, and I'm, there's already been some tours that have talked only about this piece. But, you know, a couple things I wanted to talk about is, is about uh, an artist like this in general. I mean, Anne Hamilton, all of her works are very uh, labor-intensive, a lot of work for the installers to, to put these things up. And, you know, to me, she represents a an artist who, who kind of gets their, their artwork done through their own sort of charm and, uh, and persistence. You know, it's, it's like there's no way she could do her art by herself. So she's just a very uh, charming person who has a lot of uh, great ideas and she gets the, them executed. And this is an example. I mean, this isn't even like the most ambitious piece I've seen by hers, uh, but it takes two weeks For us to put this up, Um, and that's two weeks with at least probably four people working steady. Um, So, uh, talking about her intentions, and one thing that she has stated, uh, and we have, luckily, she's she's uh, very easy to talk to and get a hold of and ask questions. So, um, you know, one thing she mentioned recently was that she wanted the fan to. To blow strong enough that it moves the notes on the back wall well that's not really possible without like making it so strong that it's blowing the fan, the, the notes on the side walls right off um, the fan is very important to her it's actually was a fan that was owned by her grandmother and so it's an old fan there's not a lot we can do with it um, so you know we're, we're kind of meeting her where we can Halfway where we can with works, you know, with issues like that, details like that. But really, in in the case of a of an installation like this, she's thought of all of the details in advance. There's very specific instructions. They're mostly just written. You know, you just follow the written instructions. And um, and there's you know, some photographs as well. Um, one thing that was unusual in this installation was that. Um, there's actually a water line that has to go to the aquarium uh, to spritz water on the snails so they don't dry out and um, we found that the, all the other times this has been installed, the water lines ran to that wall and there was a pump room behind that wall. This time the pump room is on that side, which meant that we had to cut a new channel through the floor. Which is part of the artwork. So this is one of the few uh, cases where you uh, run part of an artwork through a table saw and mm-hmm. get away with it. So, so uh, and it really wasn't a big deal because it's, it's the underside of the floor. It's basically the equivalent of the back of a painting. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to talk about. Yeah
0: built all of this herself traditionally she did the art
1: well she didn't she didn't write all the notes um, and in fact that's the other thing i wanted to talk about is is the the notes are all memories or they're supposed to be memories or uh, or they can be memories from like a, a uh, they can be taken from literature i guess but they're they're supposed to be written handwritten notes memories from people And uh, actually the first time we installed it here, we realized that our ceiling heights were higher than the other times, slightly higher. So we realized pretty early on that we weren't going to have enough notes. But she provided a a bunch of blanks, blank pieces of paper. And so we started handing them out to staff and everybody started writing notes. So a lot of these notes were written by Hershorn staff um, ten years ago.
0: Yes? Do you know how many pieces of the notes are in here? The how number? many? That's a common question. Wow, I don't, I don't actually know.
1: I know, yeah, I, I, uh, collection management might have counted them. Yeah. Okay. But I have. I calculated that at one point it was just north of 8,000. 8,000, really? now they're, they're not all originals. They're uh, not all originals. I mean, I hate to spoil it. By saying that, but actually, the ones the upper probably six feet are Xeroxes, and probably some of the ones along the bottom and some of the mixed through. It's hard to tell the Xeroxes from the originals, but there's uh, probably only about 40 or 50 percent are originals.
0: So, I'm saying that the museum staff copied notes that she had, or the museum staff wrote their own notes? No, we right? wrote our own. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, because I mean, she initially, when she first created this, I mean, she didn't, she just asked all of her friends and friends. and people to, to write a note. And, uh, and so, asking us to write something is, you know, par for the course. You know. So,
0: again, she had not ever built this space on her own and said, and taken photographs and said, this is my piece of art, you name happen in your piece of I you know, that's... Well, she, she uh, it was
1: displayed uh, a few times before it was by the Hershorn. so it was. It was. It started its life somewhere else, and she was involved in that. But by the time we acquired it, she, um, you know, her, her work was pretty much done, other than telling us that we could write more notes when we ran. When we told her we were running out, but uh, she's she's come and, and uh, looked at it and you know approved it and made comments uh, about how we maybe could do things differently. But you so know, it wasn't
0: a construction. Deconstruction and reconstruction. Well, <laughs> it Wasn't that?
1: Well, yeah. it, it is in the sense that the floor, um, you know, you, you the floor um, was made for a room this size, and so we've recreated the room size. The room size actually could be variable. She, we could do it a different size, but we'd have to reconfigure the floor, and uh, we haven't. That would be more work for us. And this is this is the room size that she did originally. How long does this room stay up? Uh, this exhibition is we got like a four month lifespan, I think. Okay. Four or five, and almost when, five. And then we. Damage control begins. Yeah, it closes September seventh, I think. So. And then when you take it down, is it the
0: individual pieces? I mean, it looks like they become sort of. Yeah,
1: they're like a, it's like a two foot square tile. Um, yeah, okay seam them together with wax as well, so you have to yeah. pull through all that? Yeah, yeah, we gotta pull all those up. Um how big is the each here? Um, it's well as you can see the threshold there, how high that threshold uh, brings you up. It's about an inch. about three quarter plywood it, and then another quarter inch of wax. So each time you construct this over, or
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the yeah the floor is, is one of the more difficult parts. Because you got to kind of shim—you got to shim every piece to try and get it to. Did you get special storage areas for
0: this art? Do you have a particular? All of
1: this fits into a, a couple of crates, and um, I believe it's—you know—and it's stored in an a art storage facility, either here or elsewhere. control. You mentioned that um, a number of people. Participated in making the work, including her show and staff. But on the text, uh, an artist, Catherine Clark, is credited. Do you know exactly her role? Actually, no, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I imagine Evelyn, Evelyn, Hank, and the curator would know more about that. Um, so. One other thing is we we switch out the the snails and the cabbage once a week. We have an A team and a B team snails and uh and the cabbage most of the cabbage i buy at a safeway in in my hometown and uh you know that's
0: how frequently is it replaced once a week
1: once a week the snails are switched out and the the cabbage is replaced so this this cabbage is three days old
0: when you're choosing
1: cabbage are you looking for any particular aesthetic? Yes, genetic? actually, I I choose the cabbage. We decided that the the snails were were conservation's the conservation department's territory, and because it's more like science, and the, the cabbage is exhibits because it's more an aesthetic choice. So yeah, I choose the cabbage based on on their appearance. <sighs> what? The snails live on this one. No, I mean, actually, this, see, we could keep talking about this, place. <laughs> snails are actually illegal in, in Washington, D.C. We have, um, and this is, what, this is how conservation really got the, uh, the short end of the stick with this uh, installation, is that they have to start um, getting a permit to bring, to import snails into the district. Uh, they have to start like eight months or a year before the installation. If it takes that long. To convince the D.C. city government to let us bring snails into the um, into the the district, and the, and they can't ever leave alive. So, which is kind of sad, but that's the way it is. about think. their natural lives, dear. Yeah, they have. They uh, there's.
0: Okay. <laughs> Uh, they, they eat the cabbage, but they
1: can't exist on the cabbage alone. Oh, so that's okay. why they have to have an A team or B team because oh, they won't—they'll get malnourished. <laughs> so how long did
0: it take you guys to install that?
1: It took uh, two weeks minimum. Yeah, it's about two weeks out. So now we're going to just go right next door. So, this is a, an artwork by, uh, by Damien Hurst, and uh, I've put this up a few times at this point. Um, but the only photo I've had, I mean, there, there's a procedure for assembling the, the structure, which is, you know, uh, it's just basically a, a rigging and mechanical maneuver that we have to do, but the, um, the, arrangement of the, of the items inside. The only photo I have had to work on this from is, is a one shot black and white photo taken from where I'm standing right now. So, um, so really, it's kind of been uh, uh, a little bit difficult to do. And, and uh, this is one piece that before we take it down, we're going to take a number of photos and maybe even some measurements of where things are on the floor and in the inside of the uh, the, the enclosures. Um, I wasn't here the first time this was installed, but um, my understanding was that there was uh, the artist was not present or a representative, and, and they they had to uh, arrange things and then take some photos. And this was before you know email or digital cameras, so they took some photos, had the photos de- developed, and then FedExed them to the artist, and then he, you know, made his comments about whether we had it right or not. So things have really come a long way. I mean, um, digital cameras have made our job so much easier. And email. Before FedEx, too. Huh? Before
0: FedEx. It was before FedEx. It was before FedEx. <laughs> and,
1: uh, yeah, so it was, they were, whatever, express mail <laughs> to the
0: to the artist. Is that pretty standard procedure to, to take a picture or to get an image of the, of the exhibition or the installation in final stage and then have it approved by the artist?
1: <clears throat> it's not unusual. Um, I think any artwork that's like this complex and has a lot of just where things are just kind of positioned, yeah, you may have to um, you know, show the artist... What you've done, and, and get their approval. Um, sometimes it's required that the artist or a representative of the artist uh, is present for each installation of an art, artwork. Usually, you can negotiate that and say, "Well, look, we don't want to bring this person from you know Germany every time. How about they come the first time, and then uh, and then we take careful notes, and then we do it on our own." And usually, a, a you know for. A, an institution like the Hirshhorn, uh, they'll agree to that. Okay. So now we're going to go just one gallery over and look at the uh, Jim Hodges. So this is the Jim Hodges. Uh, it's a um, arrangement of slightly over a thousand parts of. Silk flowers, um, and the artist has really left nothing to chance with this one. There, there's a template, plastic template, that um, shows where each piece goes. They're all numbered, and you we put it up and we take it down and we put it up and it looks the same every time. Although there's been some variations. And this is a new variation of having it wrap around the corner. And so we had to, uh, you know, there, there was sort of a, a last-minute decision. So not really a last-minute decision. It was more like there was a lot of um, flexibility going on in the layout of the exhibition. And, and we knew for sure it was going to be wrapping the corner a little bit late in the game and realized that we never addressed that with the artist. Um, So we had to put a call into it. Um, The first time this was put up, uh, which was only maybe 12 years ago, I think, maybe a little more than that, Uh, it was the artist actually came here and installed it himself. The second time we did it, we had to uh, change the orientation, and he told us we could do this, we could flip it. And so we flipped it and made a, a, a new template, and, I, and we may have called him and just told him we are doing that. Uh, the third time we put it up, we made it longer, we made it bigger, and he he had said that that was possible. The the black leaves on the left there, they kind of can be uh, their their position is variable; they can go further away. So we were putting it on a bigger wall, and so we 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 called him and checked with him. This time, I called him, and I couldn't even talk to him. So it's kind of a, uh, I had to go through his, a, a gallery assistant, and she would communicate with him and communicate my questions. So it kind of shows the trajectory of this artist's career, is that now, you know, the first time he came here, only you know, 10 years ago, he came here and did it himself, and now I can't even talk to him. So, <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, we gave him two options. We said, look, if you don't like it in the corner, we can do it. Over there, uh, across from the elevator, across from the uh, freight elevator, and which is actually the um, almost the same place it was done the first time. I mean, it's a different part of the building, but the same sort of space. And he said, "No, I don't want it there. I want it wrapping the corner." So, um, so now we've we've pretty much now we know we can wrap a corner with it, and we know we can do it larger or smaller. And so we pretty much have covered almost every option. So, now we're gonna go out to the Dan Steinhilber, which in a way is a similar situation. So, this is uh, by the artist Dan Steinhilber, who's actually, um, lives here in DC. And uh, this piece, the first time we put it up was part of a direction show, and it was in the lobby where we first met downstairs, and so it was um, much bigger. Um, he likes it to be scaled to the space, and so that space, the, the ceilings are actually 22 feet high, and so he made it bigger, wider, and he made it really, it was quite huge. I mean, it was well over a thousand coat hangers. Um, this is just, I think just under a thousand, like 700. And. Um, so that was the first time we put it up. Then we put it up a few years later in one of the second-floor galleries, where the uh, ceiling height is 18 feet. And so he made it a little smaller and uh, and thinner. So that took care of that ceiling height. Then we did it in the lower level, and that the ceiling heights there, the lower-level galleries, are 12 12. Six or something like that, 12 foot and a few inches. And so we had a record of that. So we thought, well, I thought, well, and each time we did it, we called him up and he, you know, since he's local, he came by and he, the the first time he did the installation, the second time he helped with the installation, the third time he, you know, did a little bit but then left it to us. So this time I was thinking, well, I don't really need to call him. I don't need to call Dan because... (laughs) We've done it on all the heights. All the ceiling heights have been covered. We did the 22 foot. We did the 18 foot. We did the 12 foot. This is 12 foot and a few inches. I'm covered. I've got this. So I kind of didn't think I had to call Dan at all. And but then you know he's a nice guy and he's local and you know uh, we see him around a lot uh, at openings and things. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll call him. And so I called him and he was like, well, I'll come right over. Like, no, you don't need to come over. He's no, oh, I want to come over. So he came over, and, uh, and he looked at the space, and he basically sat down with a pencil and paper, and he confessed to me that he really didn't like the last installation in the lower level and that he thought it was too chunky and that he wished he had made it thinner. And I was like, really? Why didn't you say something? And Anyway, he didn't. And so he sat down, and he basically reworked it um, right there on the spot, and change, he changed the the the, uh, the hanging apparatus at the top, made it um, into a hexagon. Before it had been just straight. He he shrunk the whole thing down quite a bit. So this is the smallest variation that we have done. And um, so you know that kind of proved that, that this piece you know is so deceptively simple. You think that it's really simple. Just hanging hangers in a pattern, and they just—but it's—it's proven to be really hard. And even after he did all of that work, and we did it, then he came by here after we thought it was done, and he said, "No, you got it wrong." And it was because the bottom hangers were had the wrong orientation. They were about a quarter turn uh, clockwise from where they are now. And I said, "Damn, what's wrong with that?" They're hitting the ground at a 45-degree you know, angle. They're doing all the things we talked about. And He said, yeah, but the thing is, and this is it's a very subtle thing, but he notices, is that there's a twist that happens with the hangers. They're twisting around, and we had forced the twist a quarter turn too much. So we were making it turn a quarter turn more than we should have. And so, how does he—he—he—he's he, such a detail-oriented artist that he could see that, and he didn't like it. So we just—you know—it it took five minutes to change it. But that's the sort of thing. It's like this piece. Even though we have instructions, we have um, uh, photographs, we have uh, an interview with him now. It's still—it's still not quite there. We still probably will have to call him the next time we do it. So it's lucky he's local.
0: Question. Who, do, who makes the decision uh, when you pack this up and maybe some of the hangers are a little dirty or if the paper starts to become yellowed, who decides when they need to be replaced or how they're replaced? If, like, do you have a replacement set of
1: um, Well, it's an interesting question. This is a, um, a piece that is... Um, made from you know, commercially available hangers, dry cleaning hangers, but unfortunately, uh, most dry cleaning hangers nowadays are printed on. It's very hard to get blank ones. And he, um, they have to be blank, obviously, and they have to be metal. They have to be, have that kind of bronze-like metal. And, you know, so the first time we put it up, he was like, oh yeah, just, just throw away the hangers and get new ones each time. And, uh, and when you can't get them anymore, that's the end of the piece. It doesn't exist anymore. And we're like, really? He's like, yeah, sure. And then, the, 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 then after a few more interactions with him, he was like, well, maybe you can. And he started to see in his own experience that they were getting harder to get. He was like, well, maybe you should save them. So we started saving the hangers. <laughs> and now, um, you know, they're, they're very hard to find. We found a source for them, and we bought uh, 1500 or so, and we brought them in and looked at them, and they're white, but they're not white like these. They look—you hold them up next to these—they look gray. They don't have the same effect. Um, So he's like, "Well, you know," at this point he's like, "Let's definitely save the hangers," (laughs) and uh, and you know we retire. You know if they get or or get torn or really dirty, we'll retire them, but. Um, it's a problem that's that we're going to be facing pretty soon, which is uh, what do we do to re- recreate this piece when we don't have hangers that are acceptable. Any other questions? Do you envision a time where you might actually have to take sort of the wire part as an armature and sort of fashion new white wrappers for them? Because Paper like this was never meant to last very long. It's probably sick, right? Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, they're not they're not archival by any stretch, and uh, um, you know, I joked with conservation that yeah, that's probably what they're going to have to do is is start removing the paper, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's it won't be my department uh, to do that. It <laughs> won't be my job, but it's um, yeah, it's a it's a hard question.
0: Thank you, Scott, very much.